how do we make the church grow? That's the question of the hour, isn't it? How do we make, how do we make the church grow? We all want our churches to grow. We all do. Every pastor, every church. We want to see our church be successful and fruitful. So what does a church need to do to make itself grow? What if it's not only true that the answer to that question has already been given to us by Jesus, we just don't listen to Him, but also that answer tells us that actually we're asking the wrong question. Today, in the middle of Luke 6, we come to this little transition section between the conflict scenes of Jesus and the Pharisees and the first extended preaching section from Jesus in this Gospel. Jesus is laying the foundation for His church in these verses this morning, which is why He spends an entire night in prayer. Here He chooses the twelve who will form the apostolic foundation of the church On these twelve pillars of the reconstituted Israel, Jesus Christ will build His church. What follows this event in Luke 6 is the perfect summary. We'll get into it, God willing, next Sunday. What follows this selection of the twelve is the perfect summary of the work of Jesus. That He is both healer in verses 17 to 19 and teacher in verses 20 to 49. When preaching, this long extended preaching follows the selection of the apostles who are the foundation of the church, we're meant to see that the growth of the church is completely dependent on the power and presence of Jesus with His Word. The foundation is laid for the ministry of the apostles in Acts here, because that's what they're going to do. And by extension, the foundation is being laid for the church for all time until the kings return. These twelve are the foundation of the new Israel, and their teaching will form the core of the church's truth following Pentecost. As we enter a new year here, another year God has given to Mountville Baptist Church, if the Lord tarries, are we aware of our need for the power and presence of Jesus, for the abiding necessity of Him in His Word to us? The modern day church of Jesus Christ is as dependent on the power and presence of Jesus for its continuance as it was for its creation. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this word to us. God, thank you for being the Lord of the church, the great shepherd of the sheep. Lord, teach us what it means to abide in you. Lord, teach us from your word what it means to grow as a church. May this text and your word through me this morning serve that end and your purpose and not my own. And Lord, please help us all to listen. Oh God, open our ears. Some of us don't want to listen, Father, for for different reasons. Not so much necessarily that we don't want to hear your word, but that life is too busy and too hard. And so sometimes we can't hear. And so, Father, would you free us this morning to hear your word from this text as we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. 
And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, who was called the Zealot and Judas, the son of James and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, there are two reasons we see in the text for why Jesus would have spent the entire night in prayer. It's very instructive that Jesus does that at all. It's Jesus. And he spends an entire night in prayer. For one, the preceding context of basically 517 to 611 sees Jesus in constant conflict with the religious leaders of Israel. And that conflict, which is draining and heavy, culminates in verse 11, actually, of chapter 6. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And they were going to kill him. That's what they were going to do to Jesus, the religious leaders, the religious elite of Israel. But the other reason, the more pressing on Jesus, actually, that he would need an entire night in prayer, is this long-term project he has in view for the world called the church. The very next day, he's going to choose out of the much larger group of disciples waiting for him on the plain below, the 12 apostles who will be the initial leaders and guides of his people, minus Judas Iscariot, of course, who will betray him, but will then be replaced because the number 12 is so significant. We know that Israel as a nation had 12 tribes. So what is Jesus doing? Does he just pick 12 to pick 12? It is a throwaway number. Is it so there can be a nice metaphor one day? No, there's meaning behind him choosing 12. He's reestablishing Israel. Notice as he comes down off the mountain, Mountains are very important in Luke. But Jesus does this as he comes down off the mountain, just like Moses had come down off the mountain thousands of years before from Sinai to establish the nation. Jesus comes down off the mountain after a night of prayer to establish the church. In the early church, they were very conscious of this, that they were God's true Israel, his own people. The fruit of the disciple-making reproduction ministry of the apostles. That's why there are 12 apostles. Jesus is reestablishing the church of which they are the foundation as his people on the earth. Here you see that word apostle, right? That's a Greek translation of the Jewish term that means this person is a fully authorized emissary. That's part of what the word means. The other is, is sent one or even martyr, maybe. But it's someone who had the legal right to speak and act with binding effectiveness in the stead of his commissioner, the one who sent him out. That's what an apostle is. And very um, intriguing in Scripture is the fact that whenever the twelve act on behalf of Jesus' commission, and in his absence, they are referred to as apostles. You don't see that so much in the Gospels. In the epistles, it becomes acts. In the epistles, it becomes very clear. But why these twelve? Right? We know the objective qualifications to be an apostle from Acts 1, verses 21 and 22. You must have been present with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry, and you must have been an eyewitness to his resurrection. So, by the way, that would disqualify anyone that calls themselves an apostle today, right? As far as the office is concerned. Nobody can be one of the apostles anymore. But, again, why these twelve? These twelve, clearly, they meet these objective qualifications, but presumably, so would anyone else in this group. So, why? Beloved, really, we don't know why these were the twelve. Isn't that interesting? We just know that after Jesus prayed, He picked these to be the twelve. Their number included fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot. A zealot, by the way, 
That, it's not just talking about he, he was like a, you know, a zealous person. This is the label of those who belong to a national extremist movement in Israel that wanted to put an end, understandably so, to Roman rule in the land. They were underground. They used methods that could be called terrorism. But again, that's very fluid given what was happening with Rome. These are the ones Jesus, Jesus designated as the most qualified to be the foundation of the church. They were common Galilean men, with the possible exception of Judas, who, that name is scary, it might mean he was from a southern, more southern region of Judah, south of Galilee, called um, Kirioth. But in their lists, Matthew and Mark, by the way, they use the name Thaddeus, when you see there's differences, they use the name Thaddeus for the other Judas that's listed here. You can imagine maybe later on that the son of James, who was Judas, probably didn't want to be called Judas anymore after the betrayal, but Levi is also called Matthew. Bartholomew is also called Nathaniel. Many Jews at this time had two names that they went by, depending on what circles they were in. We don't know that there's any real theological reason for the order of the names, per se, other than the fact that in every list, in all the Gospels, Peter is always listed first. Uh, He was chosen first. He was the first among equals, among the disciples. And then Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. Luke's the only one that names him in the list a traitor, right? taking our eyes to the cross that Jesus is headed towards, Judas Iscariot is always last on the lists of the disciples. They're also listed in three groups of four. Simon, Peter, his brother Andrew, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, that's the first tier. James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the one called the Zealot, or I'm sorry, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, that's the next four, the second tier. And then James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the one called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot make up the final group. Again, what that can do is give us a paradigm for plural eldership in the church where the preaching pastor is recognized as the first among equals, but that's because he's set out by preaching the word. He's not above the other twelve or the others, however many there are. All those named here will abandon Jesus, all of them, in his greatest hour of need. But then all except Judas Iscariot, of course, will be restored The apostles themselves will then, each one of these men, will suffer rejection, suffer persecution as they represent him who was betrayed. And then, as I mentioned earlier, the text goes right from Jesus' selection of the twelve to the longest sermon we've gotten so far in Luke from Jesus. The foundation of the church, that it's these men, is stated as such in Ephesians 2.20, in Revelation 21, I believe, The foundation of the church is laid here. How do we, in the 21st century church, make this church grow? Is that what Jesus said we needed to do? Make the church grow. And let's be clear. What we mean by that is numerically. How do we make the church get bigger? How do we get more people in here? That's normally what we mean when we say we want to make the church or see the church grow. I asked the question at the beginning. What if it's not only true that the answer to that question has already been given to us by Jesus, but that answer tells us that actually we're asking the wrong question. How do we make the church grow? Okay, Tony, then what is the right question? Yesterday, I had a sermon all written yesterday. My wife, uh, 
I was thinking about, I, I, I was already bothered by it. I was like, I don't think I'm getting at what is being said here. And it's always very interesting to me in the way things line up. If the Sunday night text is going to be an echo of the Sunday morning text, I always think that's significant just in my own head, maybe. Yesterday, my wife showed me a very interesting Facebook post from this past week. where it's a, It was a, like a public group. Someone had asked what a good church was to attend in this area. They were looking for one. Uh, I can't remember if it said they had just moved here or not, but I know that the, the person was looking for a church. I remember this or looked at this post. The comments are very interesting. For the most part, just going off of what I saw in the post, right, People from all kinds of different churches were saying, basically, come to our church because we have a good children's program. We have a good youth program. We have really good music. Come to our church, right, et cetera, et cetera. Come to our church because we do the best stuff. We have the best products, if you will, which is not a very nice way to say it, but I'm trying to make a point, right? We have the best stuff. Come here. Now, I don't know if that's what they meant. Right? I don't know if that's how they meant it. I can only go off of what they actually said. Right? You should come to our church because we have this and this and this. And I kept looking for one because I'm thinking in terms of the sermon, not because I'm so spiritual. Like I kept looking for one that said, now again, it may be there. There were 115 comments as of this morning. I didn't read all of them. right? But I did look and look and look for one that said something like, come to our church we preach Christ crucified for the forgiveness of your sins. And that's it. doesn't mean that's all they do. It means that that's what they said when they're saying, you should come to our church because I was looking for one that said, that's the reason you should come to our church. Now, first of all, does that mean when I say this, that having a good children's program or youth program or good music is somehow wrong? Of course it's not. Not at all. Not at all. It doesn't mean that. But it's interesting. It's interesting that we seem to define church growth as numbers. More numbers. If the church is small, it's not good. If it's big, it's good. If it's small, something is wrong. If it's big, you're doing things right. That's the assumption. We judge by appearances. Even though Jesus said, don't do that, we do it. And we do it when it comes to church, big time. That mindset that growth is numbers generally comes, many of you know this, from the secular world, right? From marketing strategies, from commerce, from profit margins. How do we get, you know, um, more people to come to our store as opposed to our competitors? Those are the questions that businesses ask. How do we get people to buy our product rather than that of our competitors? And that's generally the way the church asks their questions when they want to grow and get big. Unfortunately, are these the types of questions churches should be asking? And I, I want you to think for a moment, if you could, or would, I should say, about how we define growth versus how Jesus might be defining it. And I hope that you will think this through with me because you might think that this is just self-serving because we aren't as big as we used to be and I want to try to excuse it. I hope that you will be willing to listen to what I think the Word is saying to us this morning. If I said, just think with me for a few minutes here. If I said, let me take a drink here. If I said, 
I want my family to grow. I want it to get bigger. So what I did was I went and bought a very nice van. Really nice van with lots of room in it. And I started to drive around Moundsville looking for little kids. And when I saw one, I would roll my window down and say, Hey, I've got all kinds of candy in here. And toys and treats. And you would love it if you were in my family. Right? If you come and join my family, I'll, I'll give you candy. I'll give you treats. I'll give you toys. Look at this van. And so at the end of a couple weeks, I, of course, had gotten all kinds of kids into my van. And I take them home and I say, my family has grown. Look at all these kids I have. Right? Look at all these people. My family got bigger. Would you think that was legitimate? Would you think that's what happened? My family got bigger because there's more people in my house or in my van. Beloved, Jesus told us that numerical growth of the church was 100% in the hands of the Lord of the church, not the church. This is crystal clear. In Scripture, Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says to Peter, that first disciple, and he's not talking about him as a man necessarily, but as the truth that Peter confessed. Jesus says on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. First Corinthians 3, 7. Jesus says through the Holy Spirit in Paul to a church that wants to be something in its community. He says, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So the numerical growth of the church is accomplished by the Lord. Now, if you go back to that example of the van, how does a family legitimately grow? How does a family legitimately get bigger when a man and woman, husband and wife, God willing, reproduce, make another one? They make a baby. This is how creation grows. This is how the church in the Great Commission grows. Making disciples. Making a baby. That's good growth. That's healthy growth. That's the God-appointed means of growth. Be fruitful and multiply. Notice the image is not addition. Be fruitful and add. Be fruitful and multiply. Multiplication is the Bible's image of growth, of getting bigger. You multiply. Anybody can add. If I added a third arm, did I grow? No. I just added a third arm. My biology has not advanced. I haven't grown. It wasn't natural. I stuck it on from the outside. Jesus gives the Great Commission to His church in Matthew 28, 20. How is Jesus saying the church will grow? How does Jesus say the church will grow and spread? Make disciples. Make disciples. It doesn't even say add converts. It's not the Bible's imagery for that. Make disciples. Make more followers of Jesus. You are followers of Jesus. You, you, two human beings, a man and a woman, they reproduce, they make another human being. You are followers of Jesus. When you're in the community of the church... Living together, as you are 
abiding in Christ, bearing fruit, you are making more of yourself. You are making more disciples of Jesus. That's God's means of growth. It takes longer. Waiting nine months for a kid is a lot harder to do than drive around and throw kids in your van. But that's good growth. It's healthy growth. That what's there multiplies and that's how it gets bigger. That's biblical reproduction. That's biblical growth. So the means by which Jesus will grow his church is by disciples of Jesus multiplying to make more disciples of Jesus. Not just by adding on more people. Now you will do that, of course. You will do that. People will come and people will go and you'll... You, you, you do have people that just visit that you never made any contact with and they'll stay. So it does happen. But is that growth is the question. It, not necessarily. Not necessarily. But not just by adding on more people. Churches do that all the time by shuffling members. Right? Oh, we used to go over there, but that preacher did this and so I came over here. We used to go over there, but they started doing this, so I came over here. And so you, but is that growth? If you add on 10 members from another church, did you grow? Right? Again, if I add on 10, uh, you know, discs in my back, have I grown? So if the goal is just to add on more people, then when we talk about church growth, as we do, right, all of us do, so does the pastor, how do we make the church grow? If the goal is to add on more people, then church growth is about what you and I can do to make that happen. That's why we ask the question the way we do. How do we make the church grow? We're not doing something, we could be doing it, and then it would grow. Even in our semantics, we're telling ourselves, growth is up to us. Growth is up to what we can figure out and what we do. And so what does the church need? It needs more you and it needs more me. If you want to grow, you're going to have to compete in the marketplace of churches in your area. If that's how you're thinking of growth, you're going to have to attract people to you with a promise of a different product or service or good than that church has. Or this church has, or whatever it is. And if by doing that we get bigger, then we sit back and say, see, we did it. We made the church grow. It's not about not wanting to see more people in your church. Of course we want that. I've preached to rooms of three people. By that I mean my wife, one of my kids, and my mother-in-law. And preaching to a church like this is a lot more fun than that. Okay, so there is that. I, I, I totally, of course, and look... We want more people. That means more people hearing the gospel. That means more people loving and serving one another. I hope I'm, I'm not ruining that idea. Of course, we want more people. The question is, how do we do that? God's way, not our way. Because you know how it works. You can open the nicest, best-tasting new restaurant in town. You will have business until there's a cheaper, better one on the other side of town. Or maybe right beside you. So it's not about not wanting to see more people in your church. Of course we want that. I want that more than you can imagine. For all kinds of reasons. Some good, some not. Some selfish. 
The issue is whether or not that is what Scripture is calling us to do. Is that how Jesus defines and describes the growth of the church? And I wonder if in our question we have it backwards or misplaced. If if we're talking past Jesus maybe because our terms don't mean what His means. Listen, if you would, to this text from the one who built the church. Listen to this text in Ephesians 4. And I'm going to start at verse 11. Just listen to the words of the Holy Spirit inspired here. And He gave, that's Jesus, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human coming, cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When each part is working properly, the body will make itself grow in love. Scripture defines church growth as the maturity of the body of Christ in love. We are asking how we make the church bigger when we think of church growth. Jesus is asking how the church becomes more like Him. Growth as Jesus defines it is the ongoing maturation of the church into His image, into His fullness. Could it be that if we focused on our own maturation as individual believers, a part of this body that needs to be working properly, we would make more disciples. And then as an extension of our faithfulness to the Word of God, the church would grow numerically, unavoidably. There are two things we don't usually consider, I think, maybe, when it comes to biblical church growth. The first biblical principle is this from John 15. This is our Lord speaking. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 of John 15. Listen to what he says here. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. See, we use that to get more money, to get more health, to get more stability, to get more security, whatever it is. The church could grow if that's how we used this prayer, this promise. That's what it's for. It's not for increasing mine. 
It's for bearing fruit. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Beloved, sometimes the church grows. The first, you know, what, what are two things that maybe we're not thinking about in the church growth discussion is that sometimes the church grows by being pruned back by the hand of the vine dresser. Sometimes that's how the vine is growing. The branches are pruned back by the hand of the vine dresser. There will be times in the life of a church when it is growing by shrinking. By things getting harder, not easier. You've probably heard me say the somewhat off-putting statement. Sometimes you have to preach a church empty in order to preach it full. Tony, you say that a lot. What exactly do you mean by that? It does not mean that I get up as the preacher and try to drive people away. Or try to drive the whole current membership out and start something new and fresh. That is not what it means or what I mean when I say it. What this means is that when we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, not with words of eloquence and wisdom, but in the power of the Spirit, people will leave. They will get tired of it. They will go. Why? First Corinthians tells us this. The gospel, Christ crucified, is the smite on self-importance. And if all you're going to preach about is Jesus and not me, I'm going to find somewhere else to go. It happens. It happens. Sometimes a church's growth is, is being stunted. If, if growth is us growing up together in love, what would stunt that? What would keep that from happening? What would damage that or hurt that? Sometimes a church's growth is being stunted by sicknesses within, and the preaching of the Word is God's means of driving out division and discord and deadness and things like that. That's the way the Word of God has always worked. That's why they kill prophets. Sometimes in order to grow, you have to be pruned back. You have to die a little bit. You have to be replanted and reshaped by the vine dresser. And listen, that's okay. Why do we fear and resist this so much? That maybe the way the vine dresser is growing the vine right now is by pruning branches. Why do we resist that so much? We don't even take this into account. The hand of the vine dresser is closest to the vine when he's pruning it. So if we are intent on getting bigger as growth, if that's the only way we're willing to think of growth, we will not recognize, we will resist the pruning work of the vine dresser. That does not mean, by the way, that everyone who leaves was bad or evil and God drove them out and that's why they left We're not saying that at all. I can't say that. I don't know that. It's just something we need to consider as something God does when it comes to making His vine grow. That we can know. The second principle we might not consider when it comes to growth is our own dishonesty and inconsistency. Do you know of anything that healthily grows without change 
or apart from change. Oftentimes we're asking out of one side of our mouths, how do we make the church grow and meaning it while simultaneously saying inside without changing anything? I want to get bigger. Okay, maybe you could do this. No. I want us to grow. I want us to get more people in here. Maybe we should change that. That's a negative. No. No, I didn't mean that. I just meant you, preacher, you figure out how to get more people in here. You do it. Like the quarterback. Way too much credit if it succeeds. Way too much blame if it doesn't, right? You figure it out. For example, you often hear people say something like, well, like when you're looking for a new pastor, right? Let's get a preacher in here that can get more young people into our church. The preacher comes in. He says, you know what? I've been thinking about it. We need to change this, and that might help younger people feel more welcome in our church. And those same people that said, we wanted you in here to get more young people will say, no, 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 no. We meant, how can you get young people to like us as we are so that they will come here? We aren't changing anything. You figure out how to make an entire demographic like this church over that one. Beloved, it's it's simply dishonest to want to grow while simultaneously being completely unwilling to change. It's just dishonest. The right question, beloved, is not how do we grow the church? How do we make the church grow? If we take the biblical content into account, the right question is, How is Jesus growing our church right now? And am I submitted to Him? Am I, this part, submitted to Him? Beloved, either by pruning or multiplication, Jesus is building His church as He promised He would. And He prunes in John 15 and He adds in 1 Corinthians 3. That's what Jesus does. That's how He grows it. He's a wonderful gardener. The Father is the best vine dresser. They know how to make things grow. Do we want our church to grow? Then we must be completely dependent on the power and presence of Jesus through His Word to us. He spent the whole night in prayer. The next day, the church is born. Then He gave them His Word. Then He showed them His power. That's the way. That's the way. It's always been the way. We need Jesus here. We need His intercession for us. We need His Word. We need His power. We're not a store. We're not a local business. We're a church. We don't grow like that. And we certainly can't sustain growth in a market of ever-improving programs and techniques. But Jesus didn't build his church to grow like that. So we never need to be worried about how we compete in the marketplace. That's not how Jesus built his church to grow. He built his church as a movement of people making disciples. That's slower growth. It's not as flashy. It takes work in the mud with people whose burdens are difficult to carry. And so are ours. And that's the way it is. That's the way the church grows. And listen, that little thing, the gates of hell can't prevail against that little thing.
So we want to grow as Jesus defines it. We, 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 we don't try better marketing. Now, it's great. It's wonderful to have good children's and youth ministries and good music. And this year, I want to figure out how to reach this demographic we're missing from when they graduate high school to when they become, you know, full-blown adults. Like, we're just, we're looking over them. We have nothing for them. We're not taking care of them. We're not discipling them. They're, they're gone, right? They're not the only demographic in our church in need, but I'd like to figure it out. How do we make disciples there? It's wonderful to have those things, good children's, good youth ministries, good music, but not as strategies for growth. No, He grows the church. We remain faithful to Him. That's the key. That's where the multiplying power is. Just imagine, just imagine if you can, walking up to a vine and hearing all the branches talking about how to make the vine get bigger. What are you going to do? You're a branch. How do you make the vine get bigger? It's crazy talk. You'll mess up the vine if you do something unnatural and try as a branch to make it grow on your own. Why? Because the growth of a vine is in hands outside of itself. Beloved, if we would see our church grow God's way, we're going to have to take our hands off of making it grow and have faith in the vine dresser. That doesn't mean we don't do things. No, it means that we finally believe what Jesus said in John 15, 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Jesus is saying branches don't make vines grow. Branches are not the reason vines bear fruit. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So, there it is. What do we do if we want to bear fruit and grow? What do we do? We abide in the vine. That's what we do. We abide in the vine. That's where our focus is, not on making ourselves bigger, but on abiding in the vine. That's the goal of preaching. That's the goal of teaching in the church. That's the goal of all of it. Help me abide in the vine. Because that's how we're going to bear fruit. God's fruit. Bearing fruit where we've been planted by God. Each one of us. Each part working properly. Stop trying to be what another part is. Be what you are. So, if we ask, how do I make the church grow? The first thing we should do is each one of us as individuals take a long, hard, honest look in the mirror. That Ephesians 4 text is pivotal, beloved. It's foundational to our conception of, a, of, of church growth. Disciple making is growth. It's how Jesus commanded us to make the church grow. The body grows by building itself up in love. So, as the preacher, right? I'm looking in the mirror. What can the preacher do to contribute to church growth? According to Scripture, be a preacher. Preach the Word and shepherd the flock by that Word of God. What can the deacon do to contribute to church growth? Serve the families in his charge and help meet the physical needs of the members. Right? What can the teacher do to contribute to church growth? Study his or her material well. 
teach with love and humility? What can the trustee do to contribute to church growth? Manage the property well. Dispense his or her duties with diligence and care. And on and on it goes. What can I as a member do? Life goes a hundred different directions. Tony, I really don't have time to get that involved. So, And that's, that's fair. That's often not a cop-out. It's just the way it is sometimes. What can I do, Tony, to make the church grow? Be here. Be here. Beloved, you have no idea what your simple presence does for the other people in our church. You are doing tons just by being present. Do you, do you realize if you only attend Sunday mornings, you attend our church 33% of the time of your year. Be here. You, I never talk about church attendance, man. Don't get mad at me now. Or I never talk about it. Just your presence. I need this word too. I need to be with you too. I need you praying for me. I need you helping me. Have like the prayer request. Just our prayer ministry would grow if we were present. If we had more than just one opportunity to talk to each other for seven days. Just be here. That's how, that's part of how your part as a member works properly and helps the body grow. When we grow, the church will grow. That's what will happen. When we grow, the church will grow. It will. That's God's way. That's not a matter of techniques and programs. It's required of stewards that they be found faithful, not successful. And who gets to define successful anyway? The modern day church of Jesus Christ is as dependent on the power and presence of Jesus for its continuance as it was for its creation. We need the power and presence of Jesus. We need it. We are called to be faithful and trust the process. And yes, that will leave us feeling a little bit disoriented and frustrated and anxious. Yes, but maybe it's better for us to be where we're prone to be more dependent on Jesus and less dependent and sure of ourselves. Maybe the best place to be is the church is standing beside King Jehoshaphat. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This is not a call to inaction. It's a plea to you to fix your eyes on Christ as our church enters 2024. Your eyes on Christ. How is Jesus growing this church right now? Where are the places here he is calling us to be faithful? I want us to grow this year, whatever that means. The Lord is renewing my heart to shepherd His flock. May I be faithful in what I am called to do. Let us help each other abide in the vine and we will grow. We will bear fruit. Let us all look together to Christ. He's promised not to leave us or forsake us. He's promised to multiply us by making disciples through His Word. That's what He does. You and I abide. And we bear much fruit.